Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. My name is Gage. And my name is Ray. And you are listening to Go Report, a true crime podcast. Yes. Yay. Okay. <laughs> so, hi, hello, everyone. We hope you're having a good day and a good week and, and a, a good, good life. life. Holy fuck, we just shared a brain cell. We did. As we usually do. <laughs> so... If this is your first time listening to the show and you like what you hear from me and Ray, we would greatly appreciate if you left a good rating or a good review. It kind of supports the show in a big way, and we appreciate it. It really does help. I'm not going to waste any time because today's episode, oh boy, it's going to be a lot. Like, a lot. It's pretty bad. For today's episode, I'm going to be telling you guys about a Canadian doomsday cult from the 1970s that was called the Ant Hill Kids. Man, everything happens in the 70s. I'm telling you. So this is our very first cult coverage episode. Uh, Pretty excited about that. And this case was requested by Sarah, which... Hello, Sarah. Hello. I actually know Sarah. She hangs out with Courtney and me sometimes. It's been a minute since I've seen her, but I actually know Sarah. She's really, really cool. Courtney, we love uh, you. Sarah, uh, we equally love you. Yes, we equally love the both of you. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much, Sarah, for sending this my way. I hope you enjoy the coverage for sure. Because, again, it's just it's fucking crazy. <laughs> like, I wouldn't be surprised if most of you aren't even familiar with the Ant Hill kids. Um, I, I had no knowledge of this case until little. like a month ago. Yeah, very little. <laughs> so it, it's new to me, too. So when Sarah messaged us and she requested this, I was kind of immediately like, oh, wow, a perfect excuse to sit in my room for a week studying cult. <laughs> <laughs> it was perfect. So this one is going to be, for like the hundredth time, pretty rough. I do have quite a lot of information for us to get through, so I just want to dive right in. But before we do, I'm going to, as always, give you guys some handy-dandy, much-needed trigger warnings. Because this Yay. one definitely requires it. Um, it's beyond disturbing. Beyond. There will be mentions of extreme physical, sexual, and emotional abuse, uh, things such as rape, intense body mutilation, and torture. Mm-hmm. All of the not nice stuff. Oh, so it's that's, pretty awful. That, that's great. We just hand out trigger warnings like candy around here. <laughs> I'm telling we you. really do. And it's all 100% real, you guys. I mean, it's hard to grasp. So, you know, prepare yourselves for this one. Well, guys, sit back, grab your snacks. 
Relax and, if you can. Uh, relax if you can. There's going to be no relaxing, baby. This is fucking bad. No, no. Bad, bad. So to start telling you the story of the Ant Hill kids, we first need to discuss the cult's origin. More specifically, the man that formed this cult. Okay. The good old cult leader. Oh, yeah. Also, fun fact. Did you know that approximately nine out of every ten cults has a singular, psychotic as fuck, and extremely charming leader? Of course they do. Wild. It's so wild. <laughs> well, the Ant Hill kids were no exception to that fun fact. The man at the center of this cult was a man named Roche or Rock Terrio. And he is absolutely one of the most depraved and sadistic motherfuckers I've ever learned about in my <laughs> life. Like, in my life, truly, he was. Even today, he is still considered one of the most notorious and savage criminals in Canadian history. Wow. Roche is also a prime example of a stereotypical cult leader. He shows the extremes of every single trait that's looked for in cult leaders. He literally checks off everything. Like, he was not a nice guy. Not a good person. It is fucking insane. Okay. So we're going to start this whole thing off by discussing Roche and his life a little bit. All of the things leading up to when he would eventually form one of the world's most twisted and sadistic cults. Ooh. Also, one more tiny side note before we do dive <laughs> in. Uh, I just want to apologize to our French Canadian listeners. Um, I know. <laughs> yeah, I know that I'm about to butcher... A lot of pronunciations. Uh, oh, no. I'm about to butcher them. I did try my best to learn the correct pronunciations for some of these places and names, but if I do end up mispronouncing anything, I am so sorry. I mean, um, you don't speak French, though. I definitely don't, so <laughs> I'm going to try my best. Please don't think we're stupid Americans. <laughs> <laughs> so, moving on, Roche Terrio was born to his parents, Hyacinth and Pierrette, Terrio on May 16, 1947, in the Saguenay Valley of Quebec, Canada. And he was the second of seven children. Beautiful names, though. Right. So, Roche, he was the oldest boy amongst his siblings. And his whole family, obviously, were French-Canadian. Mm -hmm. And they were all extremely devout Catholics as well. Okay. So, Roche grew up in this very religious household he would later state as an adult that his experiences growing up in this hyper-religious environment played a key part in his hatred for not only Catholicism, but organized religion as a whole. Okay. So growing up, Roche was described as extremely intelligent and extremely outgoing. He was an extremely curious kid, and this in turn made him super inquisitive. He was super eager to learn new things. Why is it always the smart ones? I'm telling you, it, it <laughs> seems to always go that way. It just makes no sense. But Roche just loved to learn things. Again, just very inquisitive. When he was just six years old, Roche and his family moved to another city in Quebec called Thetford Mines. And mm -hmm. this is where he would predominantly grow up. Okay. Roche did exceedingly well in his new school when he moved to Thetford Mines. But he would actually drop out of school after the seventh grade. Or let me kind of hold up a little bit. I don't want to say he dropped out. The school in Thetford Mines didn't offer any education after the seventh grade. So he didn't drop out. He just completed what his school had to offer, which is crazy. <laughs> I know you see me looking at you. Yes. <laughs> Evidently. Seventh grade? Yeah, seventh grade. Evidently, 
in this region of Canada in this time period after the seventh grade, you were done with school completely. So I want, I want five years back on my life. <laughs> right, right. So when it comes to concrete details about Roche's life as an adolescent, uh, the things in his daily life, his home routines, all of that stuff outside of school, we unfortunately don't really know a whole lot. Okay. Uh, there is very minimal information to go on when it comes to the nitty gritty of this specific time period. Mm -hmm. But there are a couple of things that are known. So Roche himself would claim later in his life that his childhood was intensely abusive. He claimed that his parents were extremely abusive to not only him, but all of the children in the home. Uh -huh. Roche claimed that his father would make him and his siblings play a game called Bone. And basically what this game was, according to Roche, he said that his father would wear steel-toed boots and sit at the table with him and his siblings. He would make everyone wear boots. And the father would basically force everyone to kick each other in the shins repeatedly while wearing these boots. This was playing bone. What? Pretty fucked up shit. But this is all alleged. Like, as we move forward, you'll find that Roche isn't exactly the most credible person on gotcha. the planet. Um, It's hard to trust and believe his words, but this is what he claimed. There's not any concrete evidence that's ever been found to, you know, for sure prove if the household was abusive or not. Roche's parents have denied all abuse allegations, and they say that Roche had a very simple and nurturing childhood. Uh, so that's just what we have to go on. We right. weren't there, so ultimately we won't know. But one thing that's interesting to note with all of that um, is some of the neighbors of the Terrio family have come forward and said that the house was abusive and violent. Well, I was just thinking, like, that is so oddly specific. It really is. Then why, why would that be a lie? Because that's like... I mean, it's a lot of gray area because right. as we get through this, you're going to see that Roche is definitely the kind of person he wanted to garner sympathy and he does very much exaggerate things. So you have that part of his personality. But then on this note that I just mentioned, you have people that live next to this family while Roche was growing up. And they're all saying that the Terrio household was full of turmoil then entirely. I, then I tend to believe that it's full of turmoil. So it's just something to know. Again, it's really hard to separate the facts in this portion of the story because it just isn't out there. Does it? Does it look like an abuser? Does it sound like an abuser? Then uh, Chase's heart's a fucking abuser. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, all we have is word of mouth when it comes to this part. Right. So, uh, moving on, one other specific thing from Rosha's childhood that is out there, though, uh, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier about how Roche himself said that growing up with strict Catholic parents made him despise religion like that whole spiel. Right. This is one of the experiences with his parents that contributed to that, if not the main experience that caused it. Right. Okay. So Roche's dad was a pretty active member of an organization called the Pilgrims of St. Michael, or as they were most commonly known, the White Berets. This organization was founded in 1939 in Canada, and their ideologies and teachings 100% revolved around the teachings and belief structure of the Roman Catholic Church. Okay. The mission of this organization was to, quote, promote the development of a better world, a more Christian society through the diffusion and the implementation of the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church in every sector of society, especially the economic field, end quote. Okay. So, Yeah. Pretty intense shit. Um, and the White Berets were also very focused on Catholic patriotism and even religious social credit justice. 
that that is just weird <laughs> to me like why you need a religious militarized like it's weird i mean it's definitely weird and the whole like it's a big red flag bro yeah the catholic patriotism and the whole social credit justice that's like the best way i know how to put it basically the white berets believe that there was a roman catholic solution to all of the economic injustice done onto the people amongst other things this was all a part of their teachings uh the white berets were also really involved in the local community um it kind of reminds me of mormonism a little bit what were they like fascists or something i mean a little bit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. But um, this practice and the part of them being in the local community, like I just said, it reminds me of Mormonism. You know, yeah. the whole going door to door, handing out pamphlets and praying with people, like that kind of stuff. That's what the White Berets did. Gotcha. I found this next quote from the Wikipedia page about the White Berets, but it basically sums up what the members would do. Bro, so, I'd be like, get the fuck off my doorstep. Right. This, <laughs> uh, this little snippet of article states, quote, The pilgrims of St. Michael wear White Berets and their apostolate work, which consists of holding meetings, distributing leaflets, visiting families to pray with them a decade of the rosary, and present to them social credit-based solutions to the present economic injustices. End quote. I so, mean, it, it seems like it's got good intent, you know, but but I don't know, man. Red flag, red flag, red flag. I don't like this. Right, right. So because of Roche's father being so heavily involved in the White Berets, Roche was forced to help his dad campaign for them. He had to wear the White Beret uniform and he had to go door to door with his dad handing out pamphlets and stuff. And Roche stated that he absolutely hated doing this like he hated it. The campaign work he was doing with his dad was completely miserable to Roche, and it actually also caused him to start getting bullied by other kids while he was in school. Oh, man. You know, because the kids are picking on him for wearing this uniform and going with his dad to, you know, pass out these uh, religious texts and all this other shit. So the whole thing just left a pretty bad taste in Roche's mouth. Yeah. So, again, outside of what I've already told you this far... We don't know an incredible amount of information about Roche's early life. But through his teenage years, it was said that Roche was actually fairly popular amongst his peers. He was incredibly charismatic, and he was described as a complete womanizer. Oh, God. It was also noted that Roche started displaying behaviors that were very attention-seeking at this time. Like, he would overly complain to others about how horrible his childhood was, amongst other things. And it's like he was really trying to garner sympathy from others. So, you know, I mentioned that briefly earlier. But, you know, this is where it comes into play. He's starting to display some interesting personality traits. And trust me, it gets so much fucking worse. So much worse. (laughs) So, now we'll skip ahead in time just a little bit to the day of November 11th, 1967. This would be the day that Roche would marry his first wife, a 17-year-old girl named Francine Grignier. And I hope I'm saying that last name right. Again, I am so sorry. <laughs> he was how old? Uh, Roche was 20 years old at this time, and oh, Francine Lord. was 17, which it doesn't exactly make it right, but that is... That was a, it was a common thing that happened in that time period. Like, my grandmother got married her first time at 14, which is just absolutely fucking crazy. But nonetheless, it's something that happened. So the newly hitched couple would move out to Montreal. And over the next few years, they would have two sons together. Roche Jr., who would be born in 1969. 
and Francois, who would be born in 1971. Aw. Roche supported his family in Montreal by working as a chimney inspector, and this seemed to be working out just fine for him. He had plenty of work, and he was able to do the things that he needed to do. So, on a surface level, it seems that things are going good right now, don't they? Yeah. Uh, no. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, this very much marks the beginning of the end, my friends. Oh, like, man. For sure. <laughs> you have no idea. It's all downhill from here. It truly is. So around this time, Roche started experiencing extremely bad abdominal pain, like debilitating pain. Aww. And it turns out that Roche was suffering from severe gastric ulcers. Like, his stomach was ate uh, up with ulcers. And they were so bad, in fact, that he had to have them removed surgically. And this surgery would really mark a downhill decline for Roche because the surgery didn't exactly help his condition. Oh, Lord. Yeah, he was left with chronic pain and discomfort as a result of the operation. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't have any sort of medical degree. I'm not a doctor. But from what I've read about stomach ulcer removal, it's actually a pretty intense procedure. And it's not really uncommon for people to report that they experience excruciating pain as well as other complications after having the surgery. Right. Um, so Roche would also develop something called dumping syndrome after his ulcers were removed. Mm -hmm. And dumping syndrome, for those of you that don't know, it's also referred to as rapid gastric emptying and it's defined as a group of symptoms including nausea, diarrhea, and dizziness that affect a person very quickly after they eat. So basically, it's a syndrome in which food just completely goes through you way quicker than it should. Mm -hmm. And people that have intense gastric surgical procedures often suffer with this syndrome. So this is what happened to Roche. He developed dumping syndrome. That sucks. So he didn't really have it going well for him after the surgery. You know, again, the constant pain and discomfort, all of that, it really started negatively impacting his life. People that were around Roche during this time said that his behaviors and ways of thinking became steadily more and more erratic and odd. Okay. So at this point, Roche turned to heavy drinking and substance abuse as a means to cope with his health issues. Uh, he practically threw himself into full-blown addiction. He started voicing his disdain for the medical profession, and he became obsessed with becoming his own doctor. He started obsessively teaching himself about anatomy and medicine, mm -hmm. and he even started lecturing people around him about the things that he had learned through his studies. Uh, he ended up losing work with the chimney inspection, and this caused Roche to relocate his family back to Thetford Mines. Okay. And when he was there, he started taking up woodworking as a means to support himself and his family. Um, evidently, Roche was a really talented craftsman. Uh, he would fashion and sell hand-carved pieces of furniture, cups, mugs, plates, um, awesome. antique clocks, just all kinds of shit. He was making a living at this point in his life for his family by selling his woodworks. And continuing on from this point, Roche's personality would continue to deteriorate he started showing extremely strong interest in overt sexuality and sexual acts, and uh, his insane obsession with anatomy and medicine also continued, as did the drinking and the preaching and so on and so oh, forth. Oh, boy. So Rocha's marriage started crumbling as a result of all of this. Uh, during the year of 1976, Roche was making weekend trips to Quebec City to cheat on Francine. Man, fuck. 
he would lie to her saying that he was traveling to sell his woodworks, but in reality, he was just meeting and hooking up with women while Francine would be left at home to raise their sons. Like, fucked up shit. So I'll stick a piece of that wood up your ass, homeboy. <laughs> I'm telling you, like, Roche was on that fuckboy shit hard. So when Francine found all of this out, she took her two sons and she left Roche. Good. And after Francine left, Roche's woodworking business went into the ground. So essentially, he was left unemployed and homeless. Mm. So this caused Roche to start bouncing from place to place. Uh, he would sleep in his car occasionally, and then other times he would stay with one of the women he had hooked up with in Quebec City. And her oh, name, of course. Yeah, her name was Giselle. Roche and Giselle would actually enter into a new relationship at this time. And, you know, run, a little later... Giselle, run. I'm telling you, run. <laughs> um, a little later down the line, the two of them are going to get married. So Giselle is going to be Roche's second wife. Okay. So very soon after Giselle and Roche made things official, Roche started showing a very strong interest in the Seventh-day Adventist church, okay. which I found really weird because you hear about how Roche despised Catholicism and organized religion yeah. as a whole because of his parents and all that. And then here you're seeing that he's wanting to join this religion, this church. He's becoming obsessed with it. And I don't know. I found that very odd. Well, maybe he was trying to he, he figured that. He was missing something in his life. And, I mean, that that could very much yeah. be true, too. It's, it's just weird when you look at it in context. Yeah. So, again, at this point in his life, Roche became very obsessed with spirituality and religion, more specifically this Seventh-day Adventist church. Mm -hmm. And what is the Seventh-day Adventist church? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> the Seventh-day Adventist church is a Adventist Protestant denomination of Christianity in which the belief systems revolve around the observation and reverence for Saturday as the Holy Sabbath, due to it being the seventh day of the week in the Hebrew and Christian calendar. They also have a belief in the Holy Trinity, virgin birth, resurrection of the dead, and the inevitable second coming of Christ. Oh. Yeah. So the Seventh-day Adventist church was extremely conservative and fundamentalist, while also at the same time being highly supportive of living a holistic lifestyle. Say all of that. Five times fast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you. that That's a lot. Wow. So vegetarianism and a complete prohibition of kosher foods were encouraged amongst followers of the Seventh-day Adventist church as well. Again, extremely conservative, extremely fundamentalist, but also weirdly being highly supportive of a completely holistic lifestyle. Right. So you have this group of whatever the fuck we want to call it. <laughs> well, it also seems to tie in with his obsession with the medical thing as well, because yes, if you're the healthy living and the stuff. healthy living, the holistic stuff, you're heavy into the medicine, the medical field has failed you like that is motivation. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. Like you called it because all of what I just said, it did greatly appeal to Roche and he dove into this religion head first. He stopped drinking he stopped smoking like he stopped all of that. He became overly consumed with his health. Uh, he started eating better. Just everything like he found the Seventh Day Adventist Church and then he seemingly turned his life around. He became really consumed in it. But but the downhill decline does continue. <laughs> Unfortunately, it does continue. And down we travel and down we travel descending. We are <laughs> descending. So. Roche met 
and started regularly meeting up with a small group of Adventists that was led by a Guadalupean pastor named Pierre Zita. Every Saturday, Roche would sit with the group and listen to Pierre preach about conservative living and the second coming of Christ and all of that. Okay. So he became very enthralled in all of it. And since Roche didn't have a job, he decided that he was going to start selling Adventist literature. So Roche started knocking on people's doors. Right he's getting, back with the white gray Yes, shit. he's getting very involved with these Adventists. He decides that he's going to sell literature for them. He starts knocking on people's doors, selling them this literature. And just like you said, it's weird because it's basically the exact same thing that his father made him do as a child. And he hated it. Which is interesting because it's like, at what point is it programming or learned behavior? Or... I mean, it's it's really hard to tell. It's just so weird because you see Roche doing these things that he himself proclaimed that he hated. Yeah. So it's just fucking weird. But to no surprise... Roche did excel when it came to his sales, like with the Adventist literature. He had that incredibly charming personality. He was very intelligent. He knew how to talk to people. He had those top-tier social skills, so everyone ate it up. And Pierre Zita, the pastor of their small Adventist group, he noticed how gifted Roche was, and he noticed that Roche seemed extremely dedicated to the path. So in early 1971, he put Roche in charge of a church workshop geared towards helping followers of the church quit smoking. And Roche also did incredibly well at this. So by the summer of 1977, Roche had actually accumulated a small group of loyal followers. Dun, dun, dun. This is very much the beginning. Absolutely. So this group was made up of a few people. I'm about to read you their names for the hundredth time. I do not speak French. I am so sorry for the way that I'm about to butcher these, so just bear with me. So Roche's initial group of followers was made up of 21-year-old Solange Boyard, 19-year-old Chantel Labrie, 18-year-old Francine Laflamme, 20-year-old Nicole Ruel, 18-year-old Maurice, 20-year-old Josué Pelletier, 24-year-old Jacques Fisset, 24-year-old Claude Oyer, and 24-year-old Jacques Guyer, and his wife, Maurice Grenier, who was 23, and their six-month-old daughter. Oh, wow. Okay. So this group of followers was made up of predominantly younger women, all of which are believed to have been attracted to Roche in one way or the other. Of course. And so, it also makes me a little uncomfortable that there's a child involved now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's only going to grow. Just, okay. you know, yeah, it's bad. Ooh. It's definitely bad. So this whole group of people started spending weekends with Roche and Giselle in Giselle's apartment, listening to Roche preach about the second coming of Christ. Roche <sighs> eventually convinced Giselle to convert to the Seventh-day Adventist church, and he also encouraged all of his followers to drop out of college, which they all did. <sighs> what? Yeah, he would tell them that because the world was ending soon, that there was no need for an education. And again, everyone believed him. These people dropped out of school for Roche. Man, religion is like the scariest thing on earth. So you're seeing, again, the beginning phases of some really scary shit. Yeah. You know, you're also seeing in these stages the first steps of isolation. Right. Roche is slowly taking these people away from their lives. 
All of the attention and everything else that he's getting has inflated his ego through the roof. So, I mean, again, scary shit. It's kind of like, you know, be away from your families, isolate from your families, isolate from the world because the only people that matter are right here in this group. And it's... You're seeing it this early. You're seeing it begin. I mean, it's... It's scary shit, and trust me, it's only going to get scarier. (laughs) So later that same year, in 1977, Roche and his followers went to the banks of Lake Rosso and Ontario to attend an Adventist retreat. There, two more women would join Roche's group. The first woman was Gabrielle Lavallee, who was from Quebec, and the second woman was Yolande Guinebert, who was a French woman. So these two women fell right into the group, and Roche was very happy to add them in. So, you know, two new members. Later, during that same retreat, Roche decided to go out hiking alone. And during this hike, he climbed up onto a rocky clearing. And this is where Roche claimed that he experienced his first vision from God. Roche said that when he stepped into this rocky clearing, that the sky lit up with a blinding divine white light. As he kneeled... Rose said that he heard the voice of God tell him that the ground he was standing upon was holy. This experience changed Roche, and because of this supposed vision, he convinced his followers that they needed to leave the city behind and just relocate together. Further isolation. Yes, and after that retreat ended in October of 1977, that's exactly what the group did. Roche and his followers ended up moving to a town, or I think it's a city called St. Marie, uh, which is located about 65 kilometers south of Quebec City. What are we on, like, stage three of the cultism here where the isolation has happened? And now- uh, a little bit, I'm <laughs> telling you, because you're seeing it form now. As we continue, it's just holy, <laughs> holy fuck. Holy fuck is the only thing I know to say. During this move to St. Marie, Rose started telling his followers that he was a true messenger of God. He also started telling his followers that he possessed the divine gift to heal people and perform miracles, and his followers believed him. Yes. Oh, man. So when the group officially settled into St. Marie, they all rented out a two-story house together, and Roche turned it into his own clinic. He even named it, quote, the Healthy Living Clinic, end quote. And the goal of this establishment was to be a place where people could find and buy holistic literature, organic foods, and alternative medicines. Mm-hmm. Roche made his followers wear uniforms, which consisted of green ankle-length tunics for the women and beige ankle-length tunics for the men. Roche himself wore a dark brown robe to distinguish himself from everybody else. Of course. Because we got to sprinkle in a little bit of narcissism like Salt Bay. No, oh, I'm, I'm telling you, it's fucking insane. And this clinic actually did pretty well in the beginning. The Healthy Living Clinic actually had lots of business in its first few months. Mm-hmm. Roche started attracting loads of new followers. And several of the clinic's patrons started donating financially to this clinic, one of which was a man named Leo Mark Foucher. Leo sold everything he had, including his home, so he could donate all of the money to Roche and his clinic. Leo and his wife then moved into the clinic, like after they sold everything they had. So again, for the hundredth time, it's so scary. Roche really has a hold on these people. Like he truly does. And Giselle was having a really hard time during all of this because 
Roche was being constantly surrounded by young women. So with jealousy present, Giselle ended up proposing to Roche and he accepted. And the couple officially married on January 8th, 1978 at an Adventist church in Montreal. They didn't even have a honeymoon. Wow. Yeah, that like they did the wedding. Roche was pretty much like, yep, we're done. Load up the van. We're going back to the clinic. And that's just pretty much what they did. Like no honeymoon, no nothing. They went to this church, got married, came back. Life continued. Right. But not only did, you know, life at the clinic continue, but Roche's delusions also continued. During this entire time, he's still very much telling everyone that he was a true messenger of God. He's telling people that he has visions. He's telling people that he can perform healing miracles. All of it, it never stopped. If anything, it just got more intense as time passed. And as far as Roche's claims of being able to heal people, we're about to get into when that was put to the test for the first time. And uh, it's fucking sad, as you probably guessed, because uh, it didn't work out. Imagine that. It didn't yeah, work out. Of course not. Uh, it just so happens that Roche does not have the ability to cure people. So that's going <laughs> to that's gonna be the first note. So a man named Auclair met Roche, and he kind of fell into the group. And after a few weeks of hanging around Roche and listening to his sermons, Auclair told Roche that his wife, a woman named Geraldine, was incredibly sick with leukemia and undergoing treatment in Quebec City. Okay. Roche convinced Auclair to let him visit Geraldine in the hospital. And while he was there... Roche literally started a fight with the doctors, screaming and yelling about how inhumane they were treating Geraldine. Roche went off on these doctors saying that they were prescribing her way too many drugs. They didn't know what they were doing. They were killing her. Just like all of this crazy shit. He caused a whole fucking scene. Mm. And then after that, Roche convinced all Claire of the same thing. That the doctors were giving Geraldine way too many drugs and it was because of them that she was sick. Roche then proposed to Auclair that he check Geraldine out of the hospital and check her into the healthy living clinic to be treated by him instead. Okay. And Auclair did this. He believed that Roche could heal Geraldine. He believed everything that Roche said. And it would be in March of 1978 that Geraldine was officially admitted to Roche's clinic. Oh, I don't know why. I just got like hit with that pit in your stomach. Just, yeah, oh. it's, it's fucking bad. And the minute, like the literal minute that Geraldine was officially admitted, Roche forbade Geraldine's father from coming to see her entirely. Of course. Further isolation. Now get this shit. Roche's treatment for Geraldine's leukemia consisted of an organic food diet and grape juice. Okay. That's it. That's all. That's literally it. And Geraldine died within a couple of weeks. She was only 38 years old. She died right there in the clinic. Wow. And after Geraldine's death, Roche told Auclair and the rest of his followers that he had the power to resurrect the dead. So Roche told Auclair that after Geraldine died, that he walked into her bedroom and kissed her on the forehead, which brought her back to life. Then Roche said that the voice of God told him that it was Geraldine's time to go and that he must let her die. So agreeing with the word of God, Roche said that he had no choice but to return Geraldine back to heaven. And that is so incredibly fucked up. 
like incredibly. He told Geraldine's grieving husband that he brought her back to life. And because God said so, he had to release her back to the dead. I'm fucking speechless, bro. So, yeah, when word got out that Geraldine, this 38 year old leukemia patient, had died in Roche's clinic, it sparked the police to kind of become suspicious of the whole clinic. So from this point onward, the Healthy Living Clinic was basically under constant police surveillance. Mm. Shortly after the death of Geraldine, Roche would manage to bring in another patient to his clinic, and that patient was 19-year-old Gabrielle Nado. She had multiple sclerosis, and her parents had met Roche at one of his anti-smoking workshops. Okay. And these people loved and trusted Roche so much that they entrusted Gabrielle to him. She was admitted into the clinic for Roche to treat her multiple sclerosis. Oh, my God. And she remains a part of the commune for quite some time. So there's that. Okay. So now we're in 1978. And this was the year that shit really started to go downhill in a lot of ways. Over the first month or so of 1978, the Seventh Day Adventist Church started to become weary of Roche and his clinic. Mm-hmm. If you remember that pastor I mentioned earlier in the story, Pierre Zita, mm-hmm. his relationship with Roche started crumbling around this time as well. Pierre was actually going to the parents of Roche's followers, pleading with them to take their children home from the clinic. Oh, my God. Pierre was becoming increasingly concerned by Roche's behavior. Uh, Pierre even went to Giselle, uh, Roche's wife, and mm-hmm. he tried convincing her to leave Roche, but she wouldn't listen. Roche had... An incredibly powerful hold on these people. It is fucking scary. So yeah. you have this pastor who once trusted and loved Roche, and now he's saying, oh, my fucking God, he's going to these people's parents telling them, hey, get them out of there. Right. You need to get your children back. And that's just fucking scary to me. It's sad. So it would be in April of 1978 that the Seventh-day Adventist Church, uh, Pierre Zita included, unanimously decided to vote Roche out. They exiled him, basically. Mm. And this wasn't good for Roche and his clinic because it was the church that was supplying his clinic with all of their goods. Right. All of the organic foods, the loads of Adventist literature, all of it. So after Roche got voted out, his supply from the church was cut off. Well, they were even supplying medical stuff as well? I believe they were supplying everything. Yeah. Absolutely everything. So again... That supply got cut, and this made the clinic suffer financially. Uh, This all caused the clinic to rack up some hefty debt. Bills Mm -hmm. weren't getting paid. It just wasn't going well for Roche at this point. And I actually hate this part because literally in my notes, and I, oh, I'm such a, my ADHD is in full swing. But at this point in the story, Roche losing all of his money and his connects and stuff, I literally put in my notes, in asterisks, mention Fergie song. If you ain't got nobody, take, take your, your broke, broke ass home. home. Hey, if you ain't got nobody, take your broke ass home. He is home. indeed not glamorous. Definitely not, not. Definitely not. If anything, he is P S Y C H O T I C. He's psychotic. Okay, I'm done. Fergie, <laughs> please don't sue us. Don't sue us. We're done. We're squirreled. We're moving on. So, in June of 1978, Roche decided that he was going to abandon the clinic and relocate. He forced all of his followers to pack up and follow him. The group stayed in a city called Flove St. Laurent, excuse me, uh, for about a month. 
Then in July of 1978, the group eventually made their way out to the remote wilderness of an area called the Gasp Peninsula, which is a region of Quebec. Okay. This is where Roche and his followers would settle into a mountainside that Roche himself would promptly name Eternal Mountain. Okay. And soon after the group settled into Eternal Mountain, Roche's delusions and strict beliefs would kick up in intensity. This is the point in the story where he really embraces the role of sadistic cult leader. Oh, God. Like he's about to just go ten toes on the fucking ground, diving headfirst into that shit. He absolutely is. So Roche started telling his followers at this time that the second coming of Christ was going to happen on February 17th, 1979. Roche predicted that on that day, boulder-sized hail, earthquakes, and lightning would devastate the earth, wiping out everything and everyone. Roche started telling everyone that, in order to survive this impending apocalypse, that the group needed to build a camp and live out in the wilderness with him under his rule. Mm. Roche said that in doing this, the whole group would become, quote, God's chosen. Now, this place that he took them to, was that the same place that he deemed to be holy? No, he no. may he took that hike and found the rocky clearing and had that vision on Lake Rosso. Got you. Yeah, so this is the Gasp Peninsula uh, region of Quebec, so it's a different area. Listen, y'all, in case you don't know, I have the memory of a goldfish. <laughs> so, you know, there is that. Hey, I do too. I have some notes to help me out. So, I mean, you're <laughs> on the other end of this. Roche forced his followers to build a camp from scratch. He still made everyone wear uniforms, but instead of the green and beige tunics, he changed the uniforms to dark blue, like wraparound cloths. They kind of look like dresses. Um, the like a toga? I guess kind of. I don't really know how to explain. It was like basically like a dark blue body wrap. Okay. Um, and the purpose of changing the uniforms was so everyone could perform manual labor more easily because the tunics were causing everyone to trip and fall and all of that. So he adjusted. <laughs> it's fucked up. Wow. Roche was making his commune work 17 to 18 hour work days. He had people pickaxing and clearing the land out. He had other people going back and forth, carrying wood and other supplies to the base camp, just working these people like animals. And the whole time all of this work is being done, Roche sat on his ass and did nothing. He claimed that his position as God's messenger and group leader made him too valuable to do manual labor. The pin drop that just happened just now. Oh, yeah. The fuckery. <laughs> the fuckening. It is happening. Baby, we're still on the ocean in the distance approaching the iceberg that we will eventually get to the tip of. I'm telling you. So I'm ready. So <laughs> not only did Roche not do any work to help his commune, he's forcing these people to work their asses off, but Roche was also in control of everyone's food. He rationed everything out, and if anyone complained about not having enough to eat or being hungry, Roche would punish them by restricting their rations. But Roche was able to eat whatever the fuck he wanted during all of this. Of course. And it's some cruel shit. Like, truly, it's cruel. So Roche stated in his own words later on that when he was watching his followers do all of this ass-breaking work to build their camp, that they reminded him of ants. And because of this comparison, he named the group the Ant Hill Kids. 
and Roche continued daily with his lengthy sermons about the apocalypse and women's subservience to men. He continued to preach about how he could heal the sick and revive the dead. He started really emphasizing to his followers how dangerous the outside world was. He's isolating them and conditioning them. Yeah. Roche would specifically tell his followers that everyone in the outside world, including their families, were active oppressors of the righteous who were doomed to lie dead for all eternity for their transgressions against God. On the fuckery train, going south to nowhere. I'm telling you, <laughs> it's so it's so bad, and it's this sad. Is, this is the nope train to fuck that shit, Bill. That's it what really this is. is. And you know, these people left their families, their homes, their jobs, their school. Roche literally took these people from everything and... <laughs> it's exactly what a cult leader does. Right. Uh, all of this just continues to become more and more extreme until it escalates into unimaginable violence. The hold that Roche Terrio had over his followers was terrifying. And what we have next, I actually have a letter that I want to read you. It was a letter written to Roche by one of his followers, Francine Laflamme. Okay. And it really puts into perspective the control that Roche had over these people. So this is a letter from Francine, and it reads, quote, Hello, Poppy. I am writing about what you said on the subject of nutrition. It is very true that I nibble, a damnable fault which I will never again repeat. The thought of ingesting such a large quantity of food in so little time discourages me, even if I work outside the entire day without eating. I ask that you forgive me. If it is stealing, I did not realize it. It is this fault which causes my plumpness. I do not want to be a fat and plump servant that is too ugly next to the man that you are. I don't know what to think about everything and the meaning of my actions. I only know that I will not repeat them, and I don't speak lightly. I wish to be a true servant to you, my master, alert, vigorous, with a clear and lively spirit, and well-balanced to serve you every moment of my life. I have a long way to go. Thank you for everything, Poppy. I love you. End quote. That's so sad. It is fucking sad and it is fucking scary. Continuing on, it would be in September of 1978 that construction on the communal cabin and base camp were completed. The cabin consisted of a single open room with a floor made of wooden rounds with a well in the middle of the room, um, a ceiling made of mossy logs, and a few rooms consisting only of small partitions and bed sheets hung as curtains. Roche then declared that the completion of this camp and cabin was a divine miracle, which that pisses me off because it's like, no, Roche, it's not a divine miracle. You made these people fucking almost starve to death and work in the sun to build yep. it. You you fucking fuck a divine miracle. So after he claimed this miracle, he then celebrated by giving each member of the group a new name, a biblical name, to be more specific. Roche even renamed himself Moses. God damn, I know you're fucking. He did. He gave everyone biblical names and started calling himself Moses. Oh, I know you're lying. I'm telling you, you cannot make this shit up. All right, I'm sorry. Let me reel my no, shit back you're in. Good. Even oh my though, God. Even though he renamed himself Moses, he would still force everyone in the group to refer to him as Poppy. And he made everyone call Giselle, his wife, Mommy. Yeah, you poppy, because you got to be on opioids to fucking believe any of that. I'm telling you, it's fucking <laughs> insane, bitch. 
I'm telling you, the next step that Roche took, he went on to dissolve all of the marriages within the cult except for his own. If I didn't mention it earlier, Roche actually had a few members of the group marry one another. Like he chose two pairs of people and declared them married, even though these people hadn't expressed any bit of interest in each other. Mm. So now at this point in the story, he's dissolving all of those marriages and then Roche starts marrying every woman in the group. Of course. So he had Fuck about boy tendencies. I'm telling you, he had about nine or ten wives at this point. And there were also small children in this group. Because keep in mind, some of these members had children yeah. that they brought with them. Roche was also impregnating the women of the commune. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think by the end of all of this, Roche had 21 kids amongst the women in the commune. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. I'm telling you. That is you, so common, it's unfortunately. Insane. It is so insane. The cult is really growing. It's growing. And Giselle... She didn't like any of this shit at all. Like Roche wanting to marry all the other women. She was not with it. Um, another woman that was in the group, Nicole Ruel, actually went to Giselle and told her that Roche had sex with her while the cabin was being built. And this upset Giselle so bad that she actually tried to run away from the camp. She didn't make it far, though, because Roche chased her and choked her to the point of almost knocking her unconscious and drug her back to the camp. Oh, wow. So, yeah, and this is only the small beginning glimpse. And and nobody thought, nobody thought to think, like, hey, he just went and choked her out. No, no one like questioned him. Like, for trying to leave. No one questioned him. What the They f- were already in that deep. He had these people in that deep, even in the beginning. Oh, it's like Jim Jones without the fucking blackmail. It really, really fucking is. And that's going to get brought up a little bit later. Believe it or not, Jonestown actually intersects into this story. But there are some shocking similarities. There really are. All right. So at this point in the story, there are some members that couldn't take Roche's treatment anymore. And they ran away. Uh, Yolande Gwennybert who had joined the group with her friend Gabrielle back at Lake Rosseau during that retreat, Mm -hmm. she fled back to France claiming that her passport had expired. She actually managed to escape. Good. Leo Mark Foucher, who, if you remember, was the man that literally sold all of his things and earthly possessions for Roach, and he moved his wife and kids into the healthy living clinic. Uh, Yeah, he left. He loaded up his wife and his child on a wagon, and they got the fuck out of Dodge. And Roche did nothing to stop them from leaving. Instead, he just made it clear to the rest of the group that Leo and his wife were truly wicked and evil in the eyes of God. So that's how he dealt with that. Also, something wild to add here. During this time period, September through November of 1978, as we just said, we're Mm -hmm. about to bring it up. That's when Jim Jones was doing his thing with Jonestown. This was the same time period. Yeah. Roche followed the story of Jonestown very closely, like obsessively. Holy shit. And after the Jonestown massacre happened, Roach told his followers that he had a vision about the event a year before it happened. So that's unsettling as fuck to me that Roach was obsessively keeping tabs on Jim Jones. And it does make me wonder if maybe Roach was taking inspiration because with the information that I've given so far, there are chilling similarities right. between the Ant Hill kids and Jonestown. Like you got the cult leader claiming he can heal people, mm-hmm. uh, religious 
relief, uh, spirituality, freedom, making these people leave civilization altogether to build a fucking camp. Like the similarities are too much. Right. Like it really is too much. So that's something for your brain. Roche Terrio obsessively watched Jonestown unfold. Crazy <sighs> shit. And we will eventually cover Jonestown. Oh, for sure. We're going to. Yeah. We're going to have so to gear up for that one. If you don't know the story of Jonestown, we will end up covering that one. Yeah, that one. It's absolutely one of the worst tragedies in human history. I absolutely fucking hate Jim Jones. But, uh, you know, going back to the story, after the Jonestown massacre happened, the police and people, you know, citizens were on high alert regarding the subject of doomsday cults. Right. <laughs> and Roche kind of fell onto the radar due to the families of his followers filing continuous police reports. These families are trying to get their loved ones back, you know? So, like, right. police wanted to go and arrest Roche, but they couldn't do that exactly because there wasn't really enough evidence to prove that Roche was harming anyone. So, when the police came to do a welfare check on the commune at the request of some of the family members of Roche's followers... Roche decided to leave with the police to undergo a psychiatric evaluation, and this didn't really bore any fruit, so right. to say. Roche claimed to the police that he wasn't the leader of the group, but rather the commune was a democracy and that they, quote, lived in peace without any promiscuity, end quote. And although the police thought that he was a bit delusional and eccentric and weird, they didn't really have anything concrete enough to actually arrest him. You right. know, they couldn't prove that he was harming anyone, so they let him go. And after this, shit gets really fucked in this cult. Like, it really kicks up to the next level. Shortly after returning to the commune, Roche abandoned his Adventist diet. He started consuming meat and cheese and drinking alcohol heavily again. Because if you remember, he stopped all that when he got involved right. in this religion. So now he's starting all of that back up. He said, fuck my diet. I'm going to drink and do everything else. Uh, and it didn't go well because the alcoholism only seemed to amplify Roche's violent and sadistic side, as you're about to see, right. like wholeheartedly. So Roche began to deliver long, drunken sermons in front of the cabin. And if anyone fell asleep while he was speaking, he would beat them with a four inch thick club. When Maurice Grignier, who was pregnant at the time, she ate two more pancakes than Roche had allocated to her. And because of that, Roche punched her so hard in the side that it broke two of her ribs. Oh, my God. When the alleged day of the apocalypse finally came, remember Roche predicted an apocalypse, the world obviously did not end. So Roche quickly got a cover story to tell his followers. Um, and it just, it fucking, it kills me. It's really hard going through this, believing that this shit is real. It truly is. So when the end of the world didn't come, Roche told his followers that being a messenger of God was tricky business and that time doesn't work the same for God as it did man. So therefore, it was really, really easy to incorrectly decipher dates and times from God's messages. Mm -hmm. He convinced everyone to stay loyal to him. Everyone believed this. He convinced everyone that the end of days were still among them and that it could happen at any time. So all of his followers stayed. There were a few members that weren't really vibing anymore. They started questioning Roche, and they did try to escape. Not to vibe? Yeah, they're not vibing. Maurice Grignier was amongst these members. She was the one that had her ribs broken. Uh, she tried to escape, and when she voiced that she wanted to leave the commune with her legal husband, Jacques, 
Rosh punished both of them. Rosh forced Jock to cut off one of Maurice's toes with an axe. Oh, my God. Yeah, it is fucking insane. He forced her husband to cut off one of her toes with a fucking axe. And that is a theme that you're going to see here. This is something that Roche very much enjoys doing. He loves forcing people to inflict torture on other people as a form of torture. So it's fucking insane. You're seeing the first bit of it. This is a theme that's going to stay pretty consistent throughout the episode. During this time, when Maurice got her toe axed off and, you know, all this is going on, the parents of Chantal Labrie, who, you know, again, one of Roche's followers, they gathered a court order to remove their daughter from the commune and have her undergo psychiatric evaluation. But when police showed up to the commune to get Chantal, Roche denied them access and nothing further was done. He pretty much just swatted them away at the door and the police left empty handed. Wow. Yeah. A couple of days later, after that incident, a newspaper in Quebec City published a story titled, quote, They are happy and free to leave if they wish, end quote. And this article featured an interview with one of the members who escaped Roche's commune. So after this was published and the word got out from this article, 10 helicopters landed on Roche's commune to arrest him for obstruction of justice, as well as to make him undergo another psychiatric evaluation at a hospital in Quebec. And Roche aced this evaluation. He convinced all of the doctors and nurses that he had saved all of these people from a life of drug abuse and hardship. Roche painted this picture that he was a savior for these people. God damn it. He gained the sympathy and adoration of these doctors. The director of this hospital in Quebec even spoke out publicly about how enraged he was that a prejudiced society had judged Roche so terribly. Like... It's insane. You Roche's, about to be eating crow real fucking soon, bro. Roche's charm is insane. The press started writing about Roche, painting him to be nothing more than a gentle, harmonious mountain man. Oh, my God. And he was far from that. <laughs> far from that. Anything but fucking gentle. So after this second evaluation... Roche was deemed fit to stand trial for obstruction of justice, and he was given a one-year suspended sentence, and then he was released. And shortly after Roche returned back to the commune, Gabrielle Nado, the 19-year-old who had multiple sclerosis and was admitted to Roche's clinic, she fell into a coma and died. Oh, my God. Roche wanted to bury Gabrielle at the base of Eternal Mountain, but the authorities didn't let this happen. Instead, they took Gabrielle's body for an autopsy, and they concluded that there were no signs of foul play. So Roche slipped under the radar again. Nothing was done about this. They didn't look at Roche and charge him with neglect of any kind. Wow. So it's just fucking insane. So continuing on, Roche continued to drink. His sanity started slipping away more and more. He started coming up with incredibly barbaric punishments that he would deal to his followers. He's really in the throes now of becoming that sadistic as fuck evil cult leader. It's insane. Let's be real. He was only, like, he already didn't have sanity. Like <laughs> No, he, he obviously didn't, but any little bit of sanity he did have is fucking gone at this point. So now I'm going to start telling you a couple of the regulations and things that Roche started uh, doing to his followers at this time. The commune members were not allowed to speak to each other unless Roche was present. They were not allowed to communicate in any way 
children included, unless he was standing there monitoring the conversation. He would violently beat his followers with a hammer or the blunt end of an axe, and he would also whip his followers as well. Roche also started forcing members of the commune to break their own legs with sledgehammers. He would make his followers use wire cutters to cut the toes off of other members. Roche would also suspend his followers from the ceiling, hanging them by their feet, and then he would force other members of the commune to pluck out their body and pubic hair one by one. He would also force his followers to shoot each other in the shoulder with rifles and handguns. Roche would force women in the commune to have nude wrestling matches for his entertainment. He'd force them to strip down and then fight, gladiator style, essentially. Okay. And children in the cult were also punished by Roche if they did anything that went against the rules. If a child broke the rules, they would be nailed to a tree through their clothes, and the other children would be forced to stab them and beat them with rocks. Okay. Um... Yeah, fuck this guy. <laughs> you, the, the fucking tone of this episode fuck really this guy just in changed. Particular. It is bad. It is some of the most sadistic shit I have ever heard about. This is real. This is what these people endured. So in November of 1979, a man named Guy Vier joined the commune. He was the first new member of the group since the days of the Healthy Living Clinic. Guy had undergone treatment for depression at the same hospital in Quebec that Roche went to when he was forced to have that evaluation. Mm -hmm. And after Guy heard about Roche on television and read about him in the press, Guy decided that he wanted to join the commune. So he went into the wilderness and joined. He found the cult and joined. Wow. Guy was permitted to stay in Roche's storage shed away from the rest of the cult. And he was given a small wood stove, a case of 24 bottles of home-brewed beer, two hens, a rooster, and one meal a day. This man was basically brought in and treated like a slave. He had to chop wood and lug wood all day. He was forced to go out and find food for the commune, and he was also given the task of babysitter. Guy had to babysit the three children in the cult who were deemed outsiders because they weren't fathered by Roche. And these children were two-year-old Samuel, four-year-old Miriam, and two-year-old Simon. And this next part... It's horrible. It's just fucking horrible. Um, this also marks somewhat the end of Rosh's reign. Like, it's a long process still, but this is somewhat marking one of the events that marks the end. Mm -hmm. uh, this instance kind of really attracted the police and suspicion to the cult, and it just goes downhill from there. But this next one, it's fucking sad. So, you know, brace yourself, everybody. On the night of March 23rd, 1980, Guy Vier was babysitting Samuel, Simon, and Miriam, the outsider children. Right. And Samuel had a crying fit. Guy couldn't get him to stop crying, and this threw him into a blind rage. And he violently beats two-year-old Samuel for several minutes. This grown-ass man beat this two-year-old so violently that Samuel was left with a limp neck. He couldn't lift his head up. And he also lost the ability to urinate. So he had suffered some sort of intense kidney or bladder damage. Right. So after the beating, Samuel's penis started swelling due to the buildup of urine and possibly even blood. Like I said, this two-year-old child had the shit beat out of yeah. him. So Guy goes and gets Roche. And he's telling him that something's wrong with Samuel. Guy told Roche that he had beaten Samuel. And now he was unable to urinate. So when Roche sees Samuel... 
he immediately takes it upon himself to perform an operation, one of his healing miracles. He's determined to save the life of this two-year-old child. Uh, and Roche, you know, believing that he is, in fact, a true messenger of God with all of these powers, he believes that he can do it. So this is what he does. Roche takes rubbing alcohol and he pours it down Samuel's throat as an anesthetic. Then Roche takes scissors and he cuts Samuel's penis vertically in half to alleviate the pressure and restore his ability to urinate. That's how Roche was thinking. And the following day, two-year-old Samuel was found dead in his bed. The brutal beating from a grown-ass man plus the operation that Roche had performed on him had killed him. Jesus. I also read in some of my sources that uh, Samuel could have died, you know, from the alcohol being poured down his throat, alcohol poisoning. Yeah. Um, either way you look at it, it's fucking awful. This baby lost his life. So after Samuel was found dead, Roche blamed it all on Guy and said that Samuel had died not because of his operation, but because of the beating that Guy had given him. Mm -hmm. So Roche then took members of the commune and he formed a jury defense, judge, and prosecution, and he put Guy on trial for Samuel's death. At the hands of the, quote, you know, court that Roche had formed, Guy was found guilty and sentenced to be castrated by Roche. God damn. And it gets fucking wilder. Roche somehow convinced Guy that this castration would be a good idea. Evidently, Guy had been complaining about chronic headaches in the you know weeks prior to this. Mm -hmm. So Roche told him, you know, if you let me do this, it'll cure your headaches. Roche also explained that in the hierarchy of the group, that guy was a slave at the very bottom of the fucking ladder. But if he underwent the castration, he would become a eunuch, which would be a step up in rank. So guy wrote out a consent form for Roche to castrate him, and he signed it. God Oh, my God. So the castration happened on a wooden table. Oh. Roche requested that Giselle grab him some elastic bands, a razor blade, a magnifying glass, and a pair of tweezers, uh, along with ethanol solution. So you can kind of use your imagination to uh, gather what happened there. And after the castration, Roche placed Guy's testicles in a Kleenex and tossed them in the trash. This man underwent this castration. Roche did it with elastic bands, razor blades, and tweezers. It was said that Guy's scrotum bled profusely for over a week, but with the help of saltwater compresses that he was uh, being given every 20 minutes, he survived. He somehow survived this shit. It absolutely just makes me sick. I don't know. That is just... The the visuals on that... Um, um, yeah, it's bad. Yeah. It is yeah, bad. Between between what they did to the child and now what they're doing to Guy, and it's just... It's not over. I didn't think it was. <laughs> I definitely didn't think it was. I'm still prepared for the rest of it, but, like, just... You said this vibe is not chill with oh, me. Oh, then, bless it. I swear. So get this shit. It gets more twisted. While Guy was recovering from being castrated, Roche would play a game where he would order all of his followers to gather knives, and then he would force them all to stand above Guy as he was laying down. And Roche would command his followers to stab Guy to death. But right before the stabbing would start, Roche would call the game off, 
He did this to replicate the story of how Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac in the Bible before an angel called it off at the last minute. Fucked. He was doing this repeatedly. God damn. Months later, in November, Guy actually escaped the commune and he fled to a nearby city. And this is where Guy would tell the authorities about Roche and the Ant Hill kids. He told the police about the death of Samuel as well. But instead of telling the truth of what happened to Samuel, Guy said that there was a small child in the commune who was killed after being kicked by a horse. So he didn't tell the truth, but he said, you know, there was a child that had died. So this was enough for police to raid the commune. And police very quickly found the burnt remains of Samuel and the consent letter for Guy's castration. The members of the cult started telling the police that Guy had beat Samuel to death. And after that, Roche, Samuel's parents, and a few other members were all arrested. Seven children were also removed from the commune and placed into foster homes after this raid. After the coroner determined that the group was responsible for the death of Samuel, Roche, Samuel's parents, uh, Jacques and Marie Scrinier, Gabrielle and Guy, were all charged with criminal negligence causing bodily harm in the death of Samuel. They didn't get murder charges for this. Wow. They were not charged with murder at all. Criminal negligence causing bodily harm for brutally killing a two-year-old. I don't understand that. Uh, another follower was arrested and charged in Samuel's death, Claude. Uh, he was the one that burned Samuel's body afterwards, which mm -hmm. if I left that out earlier, they burned Samuel after he was found dead. So Roche and Gabrielle were further charged with bodily harm with intent to mutilate for the castration of Guy Veer. They charged them with that, too. They found out this man had been fucking castrated. Mm. So all of the accused pled not guilty. Jacques, Maurice, Claude, Solange, and Guy Veer were all released from prison under the condition that they not return to the commune. And then Roche and Gabrielle would have their bail denied, and then they would stay in prison, basically. Right. So on September 29th, 1982... Roach would be sentenced to serve two years. That's it? That's it. Two years in prison plus three years probation for the death of Samuel and castration of Guy, which is absurd as fuck. I'm yeah, not even going to go on a tangent about that because it just enrages the fuck out of me. But two years. Two he got years. two years. Wow. And while he was serving this two-year sentence... His followers moved to Quebec and started apartment hopping so they could be closer to Roche. These people are still following him. What the fuck? It's crazy. And after the members of the Ant Hill kids left their commune in Eternal Mountain, the police burned it to the ground. So Roche would serve his sentence with no problem, and then he would be released as a free man in February of 1984, and he was welcomed back by his followers with open arms. Of course. So now that the group had no cabin and no base camp, Roche convinced everyone that they needed to build another camp. And this is exactly what everyone fucking did. The, all over again. All over again. Sitting on his ass and watching everybody work. Yep. The cult would relocate to Somerville Township, which is an English-speaking region near the Burnt River in Victoria County, Ontario. Okay. At this time, Roche stopped drinking. Like, at this point, he's like, okay, I'm done drinking again. He told his followers that there wouldn't be any more violence. He made these people believe that, you know, they were going to be taken care of and that things were going to be different. And he had these people follow him and believe him. It's fucking insane. Like Literal, a regular abuser. I will change. Things will change. I'm telling you. And it uh, didn't. It didn't. Nothing changed. <laughs> In of course fact, not. not only did it not change, it got, it got ten times worse. 
So in May of 1984, the group would officially move into their new home. The construction of a new cabin had started immediately. Roche designed and assembled a rough sawmill from a chainsaw, a snowmobile engine, and some spare bicycle parts. He also designed a horse-drawn treadmill to mill water from a neighboring spring. Roche designed and commissioned a framed house for their cabin, complete with a kitchen, a bakery, a maple sugar shack, a smokehouse, a root cellar, and a stone sanctuary, which would act as an altar for Roche to commune with God. This was all built by his two male and nine female followers, four of them which were pregnant. And Roche again made these people work their asses off through the hot summer while wearing pants and sweaters. And being pregnant. To keep mosquitoes and other insects away. Like, he forced these people to not only do all these work, but he's like, yeah, you got to wear pants and sweaters so mosquitoes don't get you. Pregnant women. Building shit. Out in hot sun. Out in the hot sun, excuse me. Wearing sweaters and pants. How these people did not fucking die from exhaustion or heat stroke, stroke, I have no idea. God. So Roche also took this time to establish a new hierarchy for the group, assigning each of his wives different responsibilities based on their rank. The lowest of them was Maurice Grenier, and Roche marked her rank by forbidding her legal husband Jacques from sleeping with her. Roche also started telling Jacques that he should beat Maurice if she talked back or disobeyed him in any way, even though she was pregnant. Roche also convinced Jacques and the rest of the cult that Maurice had a birthmark that looked like the number 666, so he then in turn told everyone that Maurice was marked by the devil, public humiliation type shit. And because of this, Roche ordered Maurice to live apart from everyone else in her own little shelter with her two kids, and she's pregnant. So it's oh fucked God. up. He basically ostracized Maurice as a punishment for her rank being low. Yeah. I couldn't imagine that shit. Like, it's just, it's twisted. It's fucking twisted. Nobody who visited the compound in Somerville Township had any idea of the group's strict and brutal organization. No one knew what was going on behind closed doors. It's kind of like with Jonestown. Yeah. When uh, Jim Jones took his people out there and started building this commune and shit. You know, nobody really did anything at first. It seemed from the outside that it was a very happy, consensual people living their life together, when in reality, it's totally not that. That's exactly what was happening here. Roche had a second commune. He's forcing these people to build it from the ground up. Nobody's doing anything. Nobody's looking in to see what's truly going on. He's just left to his own devices. Brutal shit. Roche attempted to get funding for his new commune from Victoria County, like the actual county. Mm -hmm. But Roche was denied this funding due to the county labeling Roche's commune as a company and not a family. I don't really know the legal lingo of how that would affect anything, but Mm -hmm. that was the reason that the county denied him. So this left the group in quite a bit of turmoil again. He had no money. The commune had no money, no anything. Right. Roche used his financial rejection to further his narrative of the outside world being a hostile place to his followers. He would tell them, you know, look here, they've rejected us. They're not taking care of us. There's nothing we can do. You shouldn't go. It's, you know, the world's a monster, basically. He's reinforcing that alienation and isolation. And as far as Roche was concerned, if the rest of the world wouldn't voluntarily give them what they needed, then they would have to take it. So this is where Roche began ordering his wives to steal from the local grocers in the town of Lindsay. They would steal dairy products, vegetables, meat, canned goods, toilet paper, uh, anything and everything they needed but could no longer afford to buy. Mm -hmm. Roche even made special jackets with huge inner pockets for his wives to help them shoplift. 
Oh, God. On January 31st, 1985, a police officer caught one of Roche's followers, uh, Jacques, shoplifting. The police then tracked down Gabrielle, Claude, Nicole, and Roche's teenage son, Roche Jr. So, yeah, Roche was making his children still as well. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's fucking crazy. Between the five of these members, they had stolen $453.37 in food and other items. And after this incident, the group was banned from ever shopping in Lindsay ever again. So this is when Roche had the bright idea to encourage his followers to hit up their parents for financial support. And if the parents refused payment, it would only reinforce what Roche had been telling his followers this whole time. God. He would basically, you know, he was brainwashing his followers into thinking only negative thoughts about the outside and their families. So if he had one of his members reach out to a family member for money and they declined, he'd be like, well, see, I was right. I told you. They don't care about you. They don't care about us. Everything that went wrong, he used to further brainwash these people. It's fucking insane. So when the shoplifting gig didn't work, Roche then forced his group to start selling different fruits and pastries. And this proved to be somewhat successful. You Mm -hmm. know, he organized the group into a small business, a tiny little small business, which was, of course, named the Ant Hill Kids. Right. He had his own little thing going on. So a little bit of money and success started to come in. Roche became less desperate to survive. And this, in turn, made him bored. (laughs) So Roche began to drink again. He stopped working, uh, using his aching guts and position as God's messenger as an excuse. Uh, He prescribed himself a case of beer for any pain he experienced. And when he was drunk, he'd start going on these long rants about, you know, the end of the world. And he would tell his followers about these treasures that he had, which these treasures were made up of random pieces of costume jewelry. What the? So this is the crazy shit that he was doing. This is also where Roche started pitting his wives against one another. Like I mentioned briefly, he was organizing these no uh, no holds barred nude wrestling matches right. and shit. This is kind of more so where that specifically started kicking up. He started making his followers fight gladiator style. He would go out on the on the ground and he would take a stick and mark a square and then he would put two of his followers in it naked and force them to fight. All for his entertainment. And I don't mean just like wrestling and fighting. I mean like brutal fucking fighting, like beating each other, almost killing one another. Crazy shit. All of this kind of kicked back up with Roche's sadistic side. He started coming up with more punishments and things that he wanted to do to his followers. So this is where he started beating his followers with belts and hammers. Children in the cult that were punished were still being nailed to fucking trees by their clothes while other kids were forced to stab them and beat them with stones. Rose started making his followers eat dead mice with their own feces. He would also slit the arms of his followers open with broken glass. Jeez. Rose continued to defecate and urinate on his followers as well. And he also started having these contests with his wife's where he would take two of them to bed at once just so he could see which one would have the most orgasms. I'm ridiculous shit. Ridiculous shit. I'm uncomfortable. Right. And get this and this, it makes me so angry, but more times than not after Roche would commit these acts of extreme violence, like the day after 
He would cry and have mental breakdowns. Roche would beg God to stop using him as a catalyst for divine guidance and power. This man was fucking absent of marbles. <laughs> He's one fresh short of a Happy Meal, bro. Continuing on, it's only going to get more sad. Um, Woo-wee-wee-wee-wee-wee. On January 26, 1985, another child would lose their life in the commune. Uh, Gabrielle put her five-month-old baby, Elazar, outside in a wheelbarrow. It was snowing, and the temperature was negative 10 degrees Celsius or 14 degrees Fahrenheit, and overnight her baby froze to death. And this child was Roche's, by the way. This was Roche's child. According to Gabrielle, Roche hated this child, claiming that he was marked by the devil. Gabrielle said that Roche would beat this five-month-old baby brutally. So Gabrielle said that she reached a point to where she decided that she was just going to let her baby freeze to death because she felt like it was an act of mercy, a way of sparing this child the horrors of being tortured and abused by his father. Wow. And when Gabrielle took the baby's body to the coroner, the coroner ruled that Elazar had died of sudden infant death syndrome, which is just wild to me because that's definitely not what killed that's him. Not, yeah. But that's what was said. Elazar's death uh, would cause the county children's aid society to become increasingly suspicious of Roche and his commune. So they started to keep a steady eye on things. Right. It's just fucking insane. Now we have two children that have been lost in the cult. Right. Absolutely fucking savage. It would be soon after this that Maurice Grignier voiced that she wanted to leave the commune again. And since she was the only adult woman of the group that Roche hadn't considered his wife, he permitted her to go. Mm -hmm. But in exchange for her freedom, Roche told Maurice that she had to leave the oldest of her three surviving children behind because Roche wanted to make her his next wife. Fuck you. And Maurice agreed. And she left her eldest daughter, and then she took her other children and got the fuck out of there. And I know that seems what the fuck, but we have to take a note here. You're in this cult. She's been in this cult for seven, eight years. She's terrified of Roche. Mm. She finally has a way to get away from him. I'm pretty sure that poor woman was not thinking about anything clearly. Right. I'm like the conditioning and brainwashing she had underwent. I just couldn't fucking imagine. You know, again, she was part of Roche's cult for eight years. So when she did get to the outside world and she started healing and undoing all of this conditioning that had been done to her, Maurice did decide to pursue legal action against Roach to get custody of her daughter back from him. Like she went back for her okay. daughter. Okay, good. But, you know, in the moment, she got the fuck out of Dodge. It's fucking sad. It's really, really fucking sad. So as a part of this legal action of Maurice trying to get her daughter back from Roche, she testified regarding the awful conditions under which the children of the compound lived, and her testimony was awful, awful. Maurice testified that Roche would sometimes hold two women's children over an open fire while threatening to throw one of them in. Maurice said that Roche loved watching his wives beg for the lives of their children. She also said that some children had mouthfuls of rotting teeth, the children were also forced to do chores around the commune, such as hand-washing the adults' laundry, am amongst other awful things. They were worked at like slaves. The children were also deprived of sleep, food, education, and basic hygiene. Roche would also tell the children that God lived underground, and sometimes he would demand blood sacrifices. So Roche would strip naked 
and then kill and disembowel goats in front of these children. Roach would smear the blood all over himself, and then he'd hold the entrails up over his head towards the sky, Lion King style. Simba. Right. These poor fucking kids. And let's not forget yeah. the whole being nailed to a fucking tree shit thing that's going on. Right. I'm, I still can't get over that. I'm still not over that. Roche would also hold sex rights in front of the children. He'd force the kids to masturbate him. And he'd also force the kids to watch while him and other members of the commune masturbated. The children would also oftentimes be raped by Roche ritualistically. He believed that this was a proper sexual education for the children. So all of this was a part of Marisa's testimony, and after her testimony, the court ordered an independent assessment of the Ant Hill Kids commune. Sick motherfucker. And Roche just ate the shit up. Like, Roche was sweet-talking everybody. You know, he really turned up the charm. And after this assessment was completed, not one, but two doctors recommended that the children who were taken from the compound be returned to Roche immediately. These doctors put together a 300-page report talking about how lively Roche's pioneering spirit was and how wonderful his methods of teaching was. These doctors tried to write a narrative that the government was being prejudiced in their attempts to prosecute Roche and the commune, but the court wasn't having any of it, like at all. They had already deemed Roche to be manipulative and dangerous, and they just were not having it. So on October 26, 1987, the court ruled that the children would not be returned to Roche. The court had again deemed him to be highly manipulative, dangerous, and at high risk for molestation and exploitation. But even though the children were not returned to Roche, there still wasn't enough evidence to go on that could keep him like in custody. Like They had Marisa's testimony about how the children were being treated. Mm -hmm. The children were removed and they weren't being returned. So when it came to legal action further... They still couldn't hold him in custody because they had no cold, hard proof that he was really hurting anyone, which is crazy because you take her testimony and it's like, what do you mean? What do you mean? It's pissed me off. So Roche was set free to go back to his commune and his reign of terror continued. One day, Roche got pretty pissed at one of his followers, Claude, and Roche beat him and forced him to run around with several tight elastic bands squeezing his testicles. Oh my god. This caused irreparable damage to Claude's genitals. And the next day after this, Roche took it upon himself to perform a healing miracle. Another operation. Roche used a razor blade to cut open Claude's scrotum. He removed Claude's testicles with his fingers and then he cauterized the wound with a red-hot piece of iron. After this, Roche made all of his followers vote to decide whether Claude should be stoned to death or not for offending God. Roche also threatened Claude with a blowtorch, saying that he would open up his stomach with it. What? Yes. Over the coming weeks, it became a common occurrence that some of the followers were trying to flee the cult. Claude, Gabrielle... Giselle and a few others made up the group that would constantly try and escape. Giselle would go to her father's house for a few days at a time until Roche would obsessively call her and convince her to come back to her, quote, real family. And Giselle would always go back to the commune. Roche would then treat her nicely for a few days, but he would eventually brutally punish her for running away and bringing him dishonor. One night in February of 1987, Roche decided to punish Giselle for her last escape plan yeah. by uh, 
throwing a hunting knife at her, which landed in her thigh. God. It created a three-inch deep wound, which immediately started gushing blood. And Roche decided that after that, he was just going to drink a beer and take a nap. And that's what he fucking did. He threw a fucking hunting knife into this woman's thigh and then was like, oh, okay, cool. Let me just drink a beer and go to sleep. He woke up two hours later to find that a blood clot had formed in Giselle's knife wound. Roche then decided in his drunken stupor that he needed to perform another healing miracle on Giselle. Another surgery. God. He pressed her leg against a table until her wound busted open. And then he probed the wound with a red-hot iron bar. Roche also continued to pour cup after cup of boiling water on Giselle's leg. And seven days later, after this, Giselle's wound set up infection, and Roche decided to empty it out with his fingers, and then he filled the wound with salt, olive oil, and spruce gum. What the fuck? A few days after this, Giselle tried to escape, but it was an unsuccessful attempt. She ended right back up at the commune Roche had caught her. Roche continued to violently torture his other followers as well. It just wasn't Giselle. It was everyone. He would use blow torches on the backs of some of his followers, burning them until their skin bubbled and popped. Oh, my God. He used a blowtorch on the stomach of one of his wives immediately after she gave birth. He torched what? her stomach. Like, right after she had a baby, he torched her stomach. What? Roche beat one of his wives, Nicole, so violently that she miscarried. She was a few months pregnant when the beating took place. And after the beating, Roche shot Nicole through her shoulder with a handgun. Roche would then go on to break Nicole's ribs by kicking her in the sides with steel-toed boots. Roche broke Claude's toes and slit his arm open with glass. He also made Claude sit on top of a hot stove until he screamed. Claude was suspended from the ceiling while Roche's wives poured hot water over him and plucked out his pubic hair. Roche also forced one of his wives to break Claude's legs with a sledgehammer. <sighs> Roche would also go on to torture Claude by removing 11 of his teeth with pliers. And there was nothing wrong with Claude's teeth, by the way. Like, his teeth were fine. Roche was just like, oh, you know, let me just pull 11 of them casually. Roche squeezed Gabrielle's and Giselle's nipples and breast in vice grips until they bled. Roche also forced Claude to watch as he beat one of the horses to death with an iron chain, and then he forced Claude to burn the body of the horse. Insanely cruel fucking shit. And Roche's cruel treatment didn't just stop at Claude. You know, he did this shit to everybody. Gabrielle was also tortured pretty intensely by Roche. He whipped her in the eyes until her face bled. Another time, he stuck a hypodermic needle in her back with an unknown solution in it, and then Roche twisted the needle until it broke off in her back. Oh, God. Roche burned Gabrielle's breast and genitals with a blowtorch. Roche then forced Jacques, one of the other commune members, to cut off half of Gabrielle's left pinky finger with a pair of wire cutters. Uh, Roche broke Gabrielle's fingers with a wooden board. And Roche also made Gabrielle strip naked and jump into a frozen pond. That's just, that's a lot, man. It that's is, a lot to process. Yeah, it really is. It's fucking bad. 
And this next part truly makes me want to just, you know, shut down a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie. All of this makes me want to shut down, but especially this. <sighs> but at one point, Gabrielle's uterus had prolapsed after a day of being forced to work outside. God. It was protruding four inches outside of her vagina. Roche attempted to fix this by brutally punching the uterus back inside of her body. Following up by, he followed up the beating by inserting a wooden cone that he had fashioned himself to plug her vagina up. When this didn't work, Roche's next treatment idea was to tie a piece of string around the exposed portion of the prolapsed uterus, and then he started yanking it like he would a loose tooth. Oh my God. And Gabrielle suffered. It would be an entire year before Gabrielle would have the chance to receive proper treatment for her uterus at a hospital. A whole year. And I could not fucking imagine what she went through. I couldn't imagine any of this, the pain of that. And that it didn't stop there. After the whole prolapsed uterus treatment, Roche then pulled eight of her teeth with pliers. I'm fucking speechless, dude. Like. I have no words. It makes me, you know, it's the, you know, yeah, the brutal torture. That's awful. All of this horrible, grotesque shit is awful. But the scariest part of this to me is the hold that Roche has on these people. To go through all of that and still stay. It it blows my mind. So what I have next is actually another letter that was written to Roche by one of his followers, Solange. Mm-hmm. This letter also displays just how intense the brainwashing was, just like the first letter. It's fucking insane. So this letter reads, quote, Good day, Moses, my master. I would have liked to talk to you yesterday evening, but I think it's preferable to write these things down rather than saying them for fear of talking too much. I'm going to talk to you about the last fit of anger that your master exercised through you. I really believe that what you did doesn't come from you, but from someone much higher. For my part, I really believe that you were possessed by a powerful spirit. That's what I saw in what you did. The throwing of the knife, the rifle shot, the harm done to mommy. My eyes saw things that went beyond them. My body is very afraid of all of these things. I understand it very well because of the law of death in which it exists, but within myself as well. I am very well and very happy to belong to a real master who himself belongs to the only real master of life. Love, Solange. End quote. So now we're about to get into the crime that played a big part in Roche actually being caught by authorities. We're nearing the point where Roche's reign of terror finally ends. Like, fucking finally. The amount of... I want to say programming and brainwashing, and it's just like... That's what it is, though. Well, yes, yes, that's exactly what it is. But it's like when when you are sitting there thinking about, you know, having a thought process like that. It truly is shocking. It It is shocking. It's unbelievable that it's real. The mind-breaking is such a scary fucking thing. Like, once a person is broken, 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 you're no longer... You're an animal at that point because you're so feral on your instincts and your survival. Right, right. I mean, it's it's really, really intense. I think on the whole topic of cults, like not just the Ant Hill kids, but you look at 
Jim Jones and Charles Manson and uh, what was his name? Uh, Marshall Marshall Applewhite. Was that his name for Heaven's Gate? The most terrifying thing is that phenomenon, the control and brainwashing of a person to this. Yeah, it's fucking sad. So what we're about to get into now, as I was saying earlier, this is the crime that played a big part in Roche getting caught, like officially caught. Mm hmm. Um, we're nearing the point where his reign of terror finally ends, but we're not out of the woods yet. So just bear with me. So Roche's next victim would sadly be Solange, the one who wrote that letter we just read. In the fall of 1988, she started experiencing some health complications, and Roche convinced Solange that she had a problem with her liver, a problem that could only be solved if she allowed him to operate on her. The procedure would happen the next day. Roche got extremely drunk, and he got Solange and led her into the bakery. Roche then cleared off one of the main tables, and he had Solange strip naked and lay down. And this is where the first phase of the procedure happened. Roche inserted a large enema tube into Solange's anus forcefully, and he gave her an enema that consisted of molasses, oil, and water, and this would last for 30 minutes. After this enema, Roche started violently beating Solange by punching her in the stomach repeatedly. Roche then inserted a tube down Solange's throat while other commune members held her down, and then Roche commanded the other members to blow into and suck on the tube while it was in her throat. To to breathe for her. Wow. Yes. Roche then made a five-inch vertical incision on Solange's right side with a hunting knife right below her ribs, and then he pulled out strips of tissue about four inches long and a quarter of an inch thick, just tearing them off from inside of her side. He then tells Solange, quote, there, there, you're going to be all right, end quote. Then he had her wound sewn up, and that was the end of the procedure. Everyone went back to the cabin Roche ordered a cold bath for Solange. You know, that didn't really help her feel better. This went really, really downhill because when Solange went to bed that night, blood poured from her mouth until she died. And that is where she lost her life right there in her bed. She bled to death, amongst other things. The doctor that later examined Solange's body said that she had died of acute peritonitis, which I probably said that wrong. Again, I'm not a doctor, but basically what that means is... When inflammation causes digestive fluids to leak into the abdominal cavity. Uh, So this is reportedly what happened to Solange. And in her case, it was fatal. So that means that either the enema being shoved in her so forcefully and the violent beatings into her stomach Mm -hmm. literally caused her stomach to bust basically into her abdominal cavity. That's the way that I'm processing it and making it make sense in my mind. But either way. The operation killed her. Of course, because you have someone who doesn't know what the fuck he's doing, packaging it as cookies and fucking rainbows. Oh, and, there, there, you'll be all right. Let me do this. It, it is not done. It is not done. I'm so pissed with this guy. Like, I'm so sick of his shit. After Solange's death, Roche went even more crazier. He forced another member of the commune to perform a post-mortem marriage between himself and Solange, and then Roche started attempting suicide in a number of different ways. He tried to convince one of his followers to shoot him to death. 
and he tried overdosing on Tylenol, extra strength tablets. But uh, all of the attempts would be unsuccessful, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> I'm so I'm tired. Unfortunately, I am fucking tired I'm of Rosterio. I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm not the one that did the research on this, and I'm tired. So, on October sixteenth, nineteen eighty-eight. Roche reached out to a forensic psychologist uh, named Dr. Grossbeck, and Roche told Grossbeck that Solange had died suddenly in the woods from a spontaneously erupted vein in her esophagus, which is bullshit. But uh, Dr. Grossbeck believed Roche, and he reassured Roche that there was nothing he could have done to save Solange. Roche then explained to Grossbeck that he'd been having vivid dreams in which Solange was inside of his body and manifesting from his semen. And surprisingly as fuck, Roche and Grossbeck, this doctor, convinced each other that Solange was to be the very first, quote, reverse birth. Reverse birth meaning that Solange would be subject to a spiritual rebirth from the body of a man instead of a woman. To simplify things, Roche became convinced that he was pregnant with his deceased wife, Solange. That's not how this works. Reverse birth. That's not how any of this works. So shortly after how this. How the fuck are you doctors? I'm telling you. What the fuck? And shortly after this, back on the commune, Roche ordered Claude to exhume Solange's body. Roche was convinced that he could bring Solange back to life with his powers he had a whole ritual in mind for what he was going to do. So after Solange's body was exhumed on the commune's land, Roche began his ritual by drilling a large hole into Solange's head, exposing her rotting brain. And Roche then masturbated into this hole all over Solange's brain while the commune members watched. Roche again believed that this was going to bring her back. Well, that's different. It is Fucking insane. So after he did this, Roche had Solange reburied. A week after this, Giselle told Roche that Solange's final wish was to be cremated. And I think Giselle told Roche this because she didn't want Roche desecrating Solange's body further. Right. But, you know, either way, Roche agreed to this and he had Solange exhumed a second time and then prepared for cremation. Right before the cremation, Roche removed one of Solange's ribs and he placed it in a leather pouch so he could carry it around with him. After the group burned Solange's remains, every member took some of the bones to keep for themselves. Roche collected some bone fragments and tossed them in a jar with olive oil, and Roche would repeatedly masturbate into this jar as well. All of this was a means for him to continue the whole reverse birth thing. Fucking sick, fucking twisted, I don't even know what to do with that information. This actually happened. It is fucking insane. I'm I'm still I'm still stuck on the masturbating into her brains. Yeah. I'm that that is just like ritualistically, he made the whole cult watch. That's different. It's very different. And not in a good way. So July 26, 1989. Roche was especially drunk that day, which wasn't really unusual for him. Mm -hmm. And when he was drinking, Giselle, Claude, Francine, and Maurice all managed to sneak away into the bush to hide. Gabrielle stayed behind, though. 
she was too afraid to try and escape. So Rose started going on a drunken rant about how he remembered that Gabrielle had a stiff finger and he decided he needed to operate. Just finding excuses now. Roche forces Gabrielle to put her hand on the surface of the wooden kitchen table. And his idea for this operation was simple. He wasn't going to examine Gabrielle's finger or like any of that. Nope. Instead, the minute that Gabrielle laid her hand flat on the table, Roche took a hunting knife and stabbed it directly through her hand into the table. So she couldn't move her hand. She couldn't move her hand. Blood immediately started pouring from her hand, and even though she was crying, she remained conscious. She did not pass out through any of this, which is insane. Again, I just don't understand it. So after Roche impaled Gabrielle's hand with a hunting knife, he went and took a 45-minute beer break. And he forced Gabrielle to stand there with her hand impaled on this table the entire time while he was drinking. And when Roche came back, Gabrielle's arm was starting to turn blue. When Roche looked at Gabrielle's arm, he said, quote, it's not looking so good, is it? End quote. And this is where he grabbed a carpet knife and started whittling into Gabrielle's arm between her elbow and her shoulder. Roche kept whittling the knife blade into her arm until he was scraping her arm bone. And remember, Gabrielle's hand is still impaled by the first knife. While all of this is going on, so she can't move, she can't pull away, she can't do anything. This and, is like a fucking fever dream, dude. And it's after a few minutes of doing this, Roche realized that he was too drunk to finish the job, so he forced another commune member to come over and whittle Gabrielle's arm bone. All the way to the bone, like scraping into her bone, repeatedly. Roche then decided that he just wanted to remove the entire arm altogether. So he pulled the knife out of Gabrielle's hand, forced her to lay across a wooden stump that was in their living room, and Roche used a meat cleaver to hack her arm off. Clean off. What the fuck? And it was said when this happened that Gabrielle was completely silent and awake. She didn't scream one time. Wow. So wow. this does mark where shit starts coming to an end. Because a few days later, after that, on August 16th, 1989, Gabrielle escaped the commune. She managed to make it to a hospital, and there she told doctors about how her arm had been chopped off by Rochterio. And when the police were called, and everybody was informed about this, they're seeing this woman fucking beat up, and her Missing arm's arm. been fucking cut off, right? They immediately issued a warrant for Roche's arrest. But it would take the police six weeks to find Roche. It would be on October 6, 1989, that Roche was finally captured. And ironically, too, that was the exact same day that Gabrielle told police about the death and desecration of Solange at the hands of Roche. She told police that on the same day that they found him. Wow. So Roche was finally taken into custody and he was charged initially with first degree murder and the death of Solange. Good. So on January 18th, 1993, three and a half years later, Roche Terrio went to trial for the murder of Solange. And finally, he was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 1999. And even though Roche was now in prison, which is this part comes back, it still gets me. This man got sentenced to serve the rest of his life. He still had followers under his spell coming to him. 
three of his wives uh, from the commune would visit him in prison every six weeks continuously. He still had people at the end following him. And, and begging for him to come back. It just makes no fucking sense to me. That's fucking insane. In 2009, Roche made headlines by attempting to sell some of his artwork from prison. Mm-hmm. He had some sort of true crime auction website try to sell his paintings for him. You know, paint from a crazy cult leader. Right. Uh, but Roche didn't make any profit from those attempts. It didn't really, you know, didn't really go anywhere. And this story officially came to an end. On February 26, 2011, that day, Roche Terrio was found dead in his prison cell. He had been stabbed to death by another inmate who was serving a life sentence for murder. 60-year-old Matthew McDonald was the one that killed Roche. And after Matthew stabbed Roche to death, he walked to the police station, handed them the knife, and said, quote, that piece of shit is down on the range. Here's the knife. I sliced him up. End quote. Holy shit. Yeah, evidently, when Matthew was asked why he killed Roche, Matthew said that he was fucking tired of hearing him talk about the things that he did and the things that he believed, that he just got sick of them, that he was a a fucking piece of shit. And he was like, so I just did the world a favor. Yeah, the fuck you did. (laughs) Matthew McDonald was then. Where were you when we needed you? (laughs) Oh, I'm telling you. Matthew McDonald was then charged with murder in the death of Roche Terrio. And then he would be sentenced to serve life in prison for the crime. And that concludes my coverage of the Ant Hill case. My asshole is gone! I also wanted to bring up to you guys, too, uh, there is a movie that was made about Roche Terrio and the Ant Hill kids. It's, like, loosely based off of what happened, but the movie is called Savage Messiah. Okay. And uh, yeah, so if you guys want to check that out, you can. I honestly want to watch it, but after a week of researching this, I think I'm going to give myself a buffer before I'm going to. Yeah, I don't want to delve back into that. Um, So yeah, this case is fucking crazy. What do you think? (laughs) I am so happy we're done with that. My God. Like, my fucking God. I'm so happy that it's over with. Like, I'm still processing a lot of what you said. And it. I know that I was, like, speechless through a lot of it, but when I tell you that my asshole disintegrated and left into the next sixth dimension, (laughs) I am still searching for mine asshole. Can thine please put out a missing person report for mine asshole? Bequeath me thine asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Goodness gracious. This was a crazy fucking journey. Again, Sarah, thank you for sending this case to me. Sarah, no. No, thank you. No, (laughs) ma'am. No, ma'am. I'm I'm happy we did it. Like, I'm not happy we did it, but I'm happy we did it. So, Sarah, I hope you enjoyed the coverage. This one was fucking wild. Like, this one truly took me. You will pay for this insolence with your life, Sarah? With your life? (laughs) Because I will now not be able to sleep. (laughs) Sleep will evade me. So, that's gonna be it for us today, you guys. Uh, We don't really have much to say at the end of that. No. (laughs) If you would like to follow me and Ray and all of our weird will great news, you can do that. You can find us on Facebook at Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram. At Gore Report Podcast. And 
Twitter. At Google Report. Don't forget our email, guys. GoreReportPod at gmail.com. Yeah, send us an email if you like. So, yeah, you guys, I don't really have, like, a funny or witty type of rant or anything. My asshole is still missing, so please put out a bolo for that. (laughs) I never want to hear the word operation again. Please be a leader, not a follower, and always, always look for red flags. Thank you, I love you, and good night. Bye. Bye. Fuck Rock Terrio, I'm glad he's dead.